This podcast is part two of episode 26, her podcast. Aloha. Hello. 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 <laughs> Hello. Hello. <laughs> Welcome to episode 26 of Oscar podcast. I'm here with Craig Kennedy from livingincinema.com, Ryan Adams, and me, Sasha Stone from awardsdaily.com. Um, starting things off officially today. Isn't that amazing? It is. You're right out of the gate with that, too. You didn't even have to be prompted. I know, right? I just figured, what the hell? We usually have a little time to warm up, but we don't need it anymore. <laughs> Let's roll, bitches. <laughs> we don't need it anymore. Um, okay, so today we're going to talk about a couple of new movies. Uh, one is To the Wonder, Terrence Malick's follow-up to Tree of Life, and Room 237, the doc on all the weird, uh, not weird, but, you know, uh, kooky uh shining fans out there when you look at the two different ben affleck presences in both of the the movies that bookended the year which is to the wonder terrence malick which was ebert's last review and then argo which was ebert's number one movie and the best picture winner of the year you couldn't have two more polar opposites movies if you tried i mean they're so different and affleck himself is so different in both films you know, one one offers up absolutely zero um, plot, and and the other is is a hundred percent plot. You know, one makes total sense and appeals to audiences today, and one is obtuse and very hard to to uh, understand and relate to. You know, one puts Affleck as as uh, as the hero, and the other. Uh, uh, he's almost inconsequential. It could be anybody. It could be anyone. You're not even sure who the movie's about. Mm. I mean, it's, I'm talking about To the Wonder. You're not even sure who the who To the Wonder is about. It's interesting, though, that in 2012, movies, the two movies that came out, To the Wonder and and um, uh, uh, The Master, were very strange and obtuse movies that kind of seemed out of time. Like, they're out of their time. This isn't the time to appreciate a movie like that. This is the time to appreciate a movie like Argo, you know, that's, like, mm. you know, perfect and flawless and, and entertaining and everybody can relate to it. And, you know, the 70s, the era we're looking at now, was the time to appreciate movies like To the Wonder and The Master. And that's why I, I think, in the end, at the end of the day, that those two movies will be more remembered um, from this year than, than many of the other films that were popular in it and quote-unquote in the conversation it's no surprise that paul thomas anderson is a director who reveres the 70s and obviously terrence malick is a director who's rooted in the 70s right and uh, the master and other um paul thomas anderson movies would be feel would look really at home in the 70s they could be if you if you wouldn't be surprised to see any of them uh, actually being made in the 70s yeah there's something about malick's um complete resistance of what you need for to make a movie today that I had really admired in um, To the Wonder, maybe even more than Tree of Life. You know, Tree of Life is a little more, um, what's the word? It's, it has a narrative that you can, you can tell people what Tree of Life is about. It's really hard to, to explain to anyone what To the Wonder is about, I think. Right, because Tree of Life has a beginning, a middle, and an end. You know, it starts mm, yeah. with dinosaurs, mm. it ends with heaven. But... To the Wonder just meanders around in these beautiful vistas and imagery and, and, you know, impressions of things, love, divorce, God, you know, uh, 
and poetic observations about those things, about those themes, spoken as inner thoughts uh, of the of the participants um, who are going, who are living through, who are living through them. But that and the master are both movies that reject the way that we see movies now, the way that we watch them, the way that we review them, the way that we discuss them on Twitter. You know, they're not movies that that can be put into sound bites. They they, they can't be relatable to any age group or any sex or any you know person from any country. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's it's so sort of um, rebellious. It's it's almost as if um, people the people as if Malik didn't really care if people under if people left um, to the wonder. Um, whether they were baffled or not, he he almost intentionally intends for them to be baffled because he wants them to think about it. And if they think about it, fine. And if they don't think about it, then it's, he didn't make the movie for those people who don't think. <laughs> yeah, if you, really, can, if you can sum up a movie in a paragraph, then maybe you should spend your career writing paragraphs instead of making movies. <laughs> and he's doing exactly the opposite. I mean, if you, you you can say what happens in that movie in a relatively short space, but you're not describing the movie at all to say what happens in it. Right, it's kind of beside the point to even have that conversation. That's what I love about it. It reminds me of of the seventies, where you know you saw a movie like uh, A Woman Under the Influence and Lenny, and even Chinatown, maybe even Godfather Two, maybe not Godfather One so much, but there's a lot of weird shit going on in Godfather Two and uh, Day for Night. You know that mm-hmm. that was and Alice doesn't live here anymore. I mean these these are obtuse films that you walk away from the theater and you go get a cup of coffee and you sit there and you hash them out and you think about them, you know, and then maybe a reviewer comes along and writes a really interesting review that makes you look at the, look at the movie a little bit more, you know, carefully. I think audiences too, I'm not saying that audiences are any, um, were any smarter in the seventies, but I think that they were more I think that they were more willing to accept a movie if it, if I didn't if I could if they left the movie and they looked at each other if you look at your data and you say what was that all about and then you discuss it but I don't think that uh, people who go to movies today really like to do that too much they like to leave the movie and want to say like I don't know like I really love the part where she went and sh- shit in the sink you know <laughs> and then that's it you know i love that part didn't you love it when this happened or that happened yeah. but there's nothing you can leave to and and say that about a movie like the master or 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 uh, to the wonder they want, and you don't want to you don't want to look dumb to your date right and they want what they want is fast food they want to mm-hmm. know when they go through the drive through and they order this particular meal that that's exactly the meal that they're going to get in exactly the right amount of time you read some of these tweets, you know, and, and this movie was flawed, and I had a problem with this part, and I had issues with that part. You know, and it's like they're talking about a fucking car that just came off the assembly line that they sat in, and that, the, you know, one of the seat wasn't comfortable enough, or the way it shut, the sound didn't sound right. You know, talking about art that way feels so awkward, especially when you're looking at these kind of movies where they require a little more thought. And, and in the 70s, I have a feeling that they approached movies as art rather than entertainment. I think that debate was going on in the 70s, un, and it isn't going on now so much. I think that Robert Altman's The Player is a great you know, um, illustration of that dynamic, that debate. And it shows that what side won, and he was right. He just, foreshadowed. Just think that uh, Last Tango in Paris was like the, the third highest grossing movie of the year. How would that ever happen? It was just would never happen today. Hmm. You know, a movie like that would be completely 
um, shunned and, and misunderstood and nobody would go see it because the word of mouth would be so terrible. The word of mouth of people who only know how to say things in 140 characters on Twitter would be so, so, so simplistic that people would not want to bother with it. Right. How do you explain that movie in, you know, in tweets? I guess you would say, oh, she's hot. She's young. She's got big tits. He fucks her in the ass. <laughs> but <laughs> but that's not going to attract. Uh, that's not going to make them. Those those things are those things are not going to make a movie um, the third gro- highest grossing movie of the year because <laughs> that, the people don't go see those movies anymore. They stay home and watch porn. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> If they want to see that, there's other things they can watch. That's true. <laughs> they don't have to go for that. Is that why there's no sex in movies anymore? I mean, I there was a little know. bit into The Wonder. It wasn't as sanitized as Tree of Life. You know, It was his most, one of his more sensual movies that he's made in a really long time. It, it wasn't, it didn't quite approach being erotic, but it came awfully close. It came pretty close. I really liked the girl, the French woman. I thought she was really good, an interesting actress. Uh, yeah. And an interesting character too, because uh, she, um, and I, I think that she was um, she was just really too much for Ben Affleck's character to handle. He didn't yeah. know what to do with her, and right. she she didn't know what she didn't know what would satisfy her either. But he certainly didn't know what would satisfy her. Right, right. And and then poor Rachel McAdams was sort of like a you know just sort of a side character, or maybe she represented a, a more normal relationship for him. You know, not a. But that didn't work out either. But it didn't work out. And he's kind of a dick in the movie, right? Like, he cheats on these women. I thought he was a dick, yeah. Mm. I think he was flawed, but I wouldn't go out and call him a dick. I kind of was just <laughs> left with this feeling that um, we're all just a bunch of emotional flaming train wrecks, and we move from one disaster to the next. And in between, for like five minutes, everything is great and everybody feels good, but then it always turns to shit before you move on to the next one. <laughs> this is my kind of romance. To the Wonder is yeah. my kind of romance movie because it's, 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 it, it reflects what I know about romance. Yeah, me too. And, and mainly to me, I thought it was um, it was a story of love lost, of regrets, of I did not appreciate that person when they were right in front of me. And I lost them, but maybe we read into it what we want to. You know, it's well. I think that's. I think so. And I think that's that, that's a great thing. And I, I don't know that people are, uh, take. I don't think that people want to exert the intellectual energy to do that so much anymore because they want to have it explained to them, and and so 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 thoroughly that they don't they don't want to think about what what did this mean to me. They want to be told what it means. Yeah. I liked it that it wasn't all, you know, about heaven and resolutions the way I thought Tree of Life was. Mm-hmm. I also think it's an amazing that and interesting that Malik has the freedom to just explore his own inner world like that and put it on film and that people will distribute it, you know. Mm-hmm. I do, too. And Both, I liked um, it. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Craig. I was just going to say that uh, Tree of Life and uh, The New World were both more powerful films to me because... I don't know, maybe I'm a little more simplistic at times, but there was, to both of those films, there was a strong emotional hook that grabbed me and pulled me through some of his more flightier cinematic fancies and his more lyricism, whereas this one I never quite had that same hook. But I wouldn't say that it was not... It doesn't make me say that it's a bad movie. I think it's still a fine movie. It just wasn't quite... It wasn't quite the one for me. 
Well, but, I think it could uh, still be a fine movie without. Right. Me. It's just not as good. As, it's certainly not as good as as the New World. Well, or see, I, of Life. see, I don't even want to go that far. It's just a okay. different. It's a different movie. It's it, it it didn't happen to be mine, but it that I, I, I'm resisting people's urge to to sort of categorize it and say, okay, it's it's this it's this good or that good or it it, it was flawed or I, I'm trying to let it exist on its own and and be its own thing. I'm, and I'm actually just rambling and talking. No, I know what those. you're saying, but I still think it's, I mean, it's too soon for me to know how I feel about it, but I, I think that it, it's not too soon for me to make a snap judgment and say that, I, that, that I'm able to rank it among Malick's films and know which one, which of Malick's films I like better and which ones I like worse. And I, this is not one of my favorite Malick films, but I still think it's fantastic. Yeah, I, I think we're probably saying the same thing. I was trying to, uh, I was trying to inject my feelings on it without either building it up or tearing it down because I think that's the tendency. People say, oh, well, that wasn't very good. And you look at the reviews of it and that's sort of the the prevailing opinion among most critics, not all of them obviously, but there, there's a there's a, there's a a tendency to try and, and, and I don't know what I'm trying to say again. I would encourage anybody who likes Terrence Malick to see to the wondered and anyone who, who has misgivings about Terrence Malick and has problems with him, you're going to have even more problems probably with to the wonder than you've had with some of his other movies. For so sure. take, so, you know, uh, you know, your mileage is, is going to differ. And so see to the wonder at your own risk. If you're not a, if you're not, if you're not able to accept what Malick is trying to do, then you know what you're getting yourself into. And either way, it's a movie that deserves to be seen and talked about. You might see it, you might hate it, but I think it, it, there's 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 you're, you benefit yourself and the movie too, obviously, if to, to see it and talk about it. And and maybe you'll hate it, but still, I think there's something to be gained from it. I would say to anyone, think about all the ways that you have wasted two hours in your life, and and you're not going to be wasting two hours to see To the Wonder. You know, think of all the hours that people have wasted watching Dancing with the Stars or whatever, and you're <laughs> going to get so much out of To the Wonder than you ever would get out of two hours of television. Yeah, most I, don't, television. I don't think you can say, anybody can say with a straight face that it's a bad movie. They're just not qualified no. to make that assessment. No. They no. can say, I didn't relate to it, or it didn't grab me, or I was confused all the way through it. I didn't know what was happening. I was in the dark. Fine, you know, but you can't say that's a bad movie. I don't think. No, I was confused, and I'm still a little bit confused. I need to see it again, but I want to see it again because I don't mind being confused, and I don't mind having to think about um, a movie like this. But when I know that it has such um, integrity behind it and such good intentions, I know that he that Malik has said um, really profound things to me before, and I trust that he has more profound things to say. And I'm just not the fact that I'm not getting it on the first viewing is no no reflection on the movie; it's a reflection on me. Right, I think it really it really will relate to you if you are in the throes of some kind of love. If you're in love or you've just been heartbroken or mm-hmm. if you were like at the beginning of mad love with somebody and you watch to the wonder, it's going to set you on fire. Mm-hmm. But if you're and if you've been dumped and you're heartbroken, it's going to make you sob. But if you're kind of in the middle and you don't really connect to that, I do think that it's a it's a movie of passion and of love. And, you know, with a little religion thrown in here and there. I think what you're saying is exactly what kept me from embracing it so much because I'm kind of going through this phase where I'm sort of this misanthropic hermit. And um, <laughs> so the whole the whole love thing just doesn't, doesn't float my boat in the same way that it might have if I were feeling more 
either more wounded or idealistic one way or the other. Exactly. Me too. It really grabbed me by the heart so hard and so, so, so firmly because uh, one thing that it deals with, I, I, I've been involved for, for years and years with someone from another country and to see what a person from another country has to deal with when they come to America and try to necessarily have to try to fit in and try to be liked in a, in a country like America and have what they have, what, what you don't know about that person because of what they have to leave behind of what they really are. And, and you don't really know that person unless you know them in the, within their own borders, in their, in the city where they were born. Mm-hmm. And when you try to transplant someone away from their culture and, and, and inject them into a totally foreign culture, uh, how difficult that must be for them. And really how, how doomed it almost is. It's doomed. Hmm. I hate to say, put, say it like that. Well, but, no, it feels I mean, some... It's not always doomed, but I, and it can be, I mean, there can be ways to find ways to deal with it, but I mean, it's really, really hard. Oh, God. Well, I think that if that's where he was going with it, I think he succeeded. It does feel doomed to me watching that. Whereas Tree of Life felt hopeful. I felt like uh, To the Wonder did not. It felt sad and doomed and like we're, we're all on our own journeys and we're, we're pretty much fucked they both seem like companion pieces to me you're right though they, they're they different in sort of point of view the, the, the tree of life came across much more hopeful and optimistic this one felt um, it felt like everybody was even even in the throes of love they still felt isolated and mm. it was people banging up against each other and sometimes they would connect and sometimes they wouldn't mm. but ultimately it was sort of doomed to to failure and and doubt and you even had the the priest character who who would talk the talk about in terms of divine love and human love and yet he didn't even believe the things that he was saying and right. even he was isolated from the people around him even though he was speaking these words of of communion and knowing how spiritual and how religious Malik is, um, I was—I have such respect for him that he—that he had the guts to show that that the people who are supposed to be the moral authorities and who are our advisors through tough times like this really don't know what the hell they're talking about. Mm. When a priest can stand in front of a congregation and say, "A husband should love his wife the way Jesus loves the church," what the hell does that even mean? You know right. how? What? How can a husband love his wife like Jesus loves the church? What the fuck? I, th- I think people. Um, I think people assume that his spiritual beliefs are are too conventional and too too decided. I, I, I get I get the impression of him as a man who doesn't quite have the answers and is still kind of looking for them. I know that a lot of people rejected Tree of Life because of the overt Christian symbolism of it, um, but. Uh, I'm a non-Christian, and I watched it, and I don't believe in God, but I still was deeply moved by just the the search. And even though the um, Jessica Chastain's character dealt with the world in strongly Christian terms, I don't know that that the filmmaker was necessarily putting a stamp of approval on that. I think he was he's he's looking like the rest of us are. Yeah. Question. I, mean, I, I could be wrong because he yeah. obviously he doesn't he doesn't do interviews and doesn't tell what he thinks about things, which is one of the reasons that makes him his films even more interesting. But I I, I it's weird that I I feel like I'm taking away different things from the reviews that I read of his films. It's, mm-hmm. It seems like he is searching for something without answers. I mean, that's what these movies are. They're they're ruminations, you know. Um, 
they don't either of them. I mean, I, I admit that I felt it was a little too like, oh, and then we just go to heaven at the end of Tree of Life, you know, when I first mm -hmm. saw it. But that doesn't mean that I wasn't moved all the way through it by the same thing I was moved with to the wonder, which is the incredible imagery that you just don't see in movies now. You know, maybe not ever that some of those moments in, um, well, in, in, in Tree of Life, but, but in To the Wonder, too, like the horses, um, you know, running back and forth the way that they did in that one scene. It's just stunning to look at. It takes your breath away. Some of those scenes with, uh, with uh, Ben Affleck and that woman, I don't, can't remember her name, the French actress, and, you know, he's stroking her face and he's, you know, stroking her neck and her hair is back. I mean, that kind of stuff is... You know, that belongs in a museum. It's so powerful visually. You know, I don't know he, what it means. He was means. very obsessed with faces and expressions and people touching each other and, and contact and intimacy in a way that he he didn't seem to be quite so much in, a, in some of his previous films. That was one of the appealing things about it. Yeah, because it's, it's, it's not spiritual. It's very earthly. It's very tangible. Right. This is what, you know, the grass on the ground, the water in the mud the skin, the, her breasts, you know, the way she feels when we kiss, you know, it's very, this, these are the things that you miss when you leave and you go to, to the other world or whatever, or you're, you know, you're having a spiritual mm. out-of-body experience. The, the tangible earthly stuff seemed like what he wanted to really hang on to with this. And the stuff that he, that was echoing to him about maybe a lost love or someone that he let go seemed to be coming back to him in a rush, you know, of sensation. In some movies, like I'm thinking maybe Winter's Bone or um, um, I, yeah, I, I, the, the, there was a scene in Winter's Bone with, uh, with, with shots of the wildlife in the woods, but they were, they were so fleeting. They would last maybe five seconds and then you'd be back into the narrative. It's the opposite thing in a Malick film. There's, there's, there's hours and hours of lyricism and poetry with only the, the barest um, prose prosaic stuff holding them together holding those images together and, the, and there's just no other director who does that there's no yeah. other director who has the freedom to do that who gets the financing and the the backing and the money to do that anymore the only one who comes kind of close in my mind well the two but they're totally in different realms would be david lynch and well jane campion and um, and Paul Thomas Anderson, but um, and I think maybe they tried to do it in Beast of the Southern Wild too. That's another right, example. Sure. That's what I was trying Absolutely. to think of a minute ago. Yeah. yeah. But it's so rare. I mean, it's so rare, and it's not the kind of it's not for everybody. It's not to everyone's taste, and it shouldn't be. I mean, there are just people. There are not thirty three hundred million poetry readers in America. I can tell you that these movies, his last two movies, are very much about memory and past. And I think the older you get, the more they will resonate with you. That's, that's mm -hmm. my feeling on both films, although Tree of Life did not have any problem gathering a youthful audience. But I bet you that To the Wonder does to a degree. Because a lot of these, you know, audience, a lot of these critics now who write fucking reviews on Metacritic even, mm -hmm. um, they haven't lived their final, you know, they haven't ended... You know, the, they haven't shut the door on love. You know, they haven't said they have. They're not in the last moments of their life where they're remembering back to the true, to the women that they regret losing. You know, mm. which is what to the wonder felt like to me. Like it was really, 
it felt like that, like an ode to, to past loves. I mean, again, that could just be my interpretation. No, absolutely. And what you say about memory is so true. I think that Malik and, and Lubeski, who we have can't underestimate his contribution, what they are, when Emmanuel Lubeski is able to do with the camera, they capture the, the, the feeling and the sense of a memory better than any director, uh, cinematographer combination I can think of. Most people, when they, most film directors and most movies, when they do a memory, it's in flashback form where there's a, where you flash back to a complete story that, that happened in the past. Malik, when he taught, when he films a memory, it's a, it's a, it's a, such a fleeting thing that you can't, you can't hold on to it by the time that you see it, it's gone. Exactly. That's such a great way to put it. It's fleeting, but it's not, and it's, but it's also not made completely distinct from the present. It's often hard to tell when he's dealing with memory and when he's dealing with the now. They're, they're, mm -hmm. as far as your brain is concerned, they're both the same because you're feeling them simultaneously. But I just noticed as I was, as I'm going through this weird, like mortality freak out that I've been going through for the last year, um, you know, as, you know, as I head towards 50 years old and I'm saying goodbye to my twenties, my thirties and my forties, you know, it's, it's all coming down to conclusions in some ways. And there are certain people in my past that I remember, you know, erotically, and I remember them so significantly because they really stand out. You know, you know that everybody knows that there are just a few of those mm -hmm. in your life that really, really stand out apart from the rest. And you always kind of think, oh, you know what, they'll, they'll fade because I'll be meeting other people and who will take over and I'll, I'll have that again. I'll find that again, you know. And and then as you get older and, and those doors start to close and the light starts to go down on that. I mean, maybe it's not true. Perhaps this is my you know own depressing point of view. But <laughs> those those moments. It's depressing, but defined. I don't think you're, it's unique. I think because I feel the same way. I, I have never felt the 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 passion and the and the ecstasy of love that I felt when I was in my when I, in the, my first love in my teens and twenties, that mm. it's never been, I've never been able to, to re regain that. Feeling. Yeah. There are a couple for me that, that I don't know if I will ever top them. And so where do they go? Well, they reside in memory and sense memory. And that's to me what, what to the wonder really did was, it was just like, yeah, that's what he's doing. He's recalling those, you know, incredible, memorable erotic moments and he does it in such a great way because it's the streets of paris it's a woman's french voiceover you know i mean how much more romantic can you get than that what's amazing what's beautiful too that he does he shows us that the, that the vistas a sunset in oklahoma can be as as beautiful and breathtaking as any vista in paris mm. which i wouldn't have thought really I don't think about enough, but we really should appreciate that you don't have to go to Paris to see breathtaking sights. They're all around us. If you At just, the same time, there's some places that are better when you turn the lights down a little bit. That's right. <laughs> some places that are better if you have Emmanuel Lebesky filming them. You, know, you can just get Emmanuel Lebesky. To, he can make anything look good. Oh, my God. It's true. It's true. But what a beautiful movie, though. What a, what a like visual massage that is, that film. Yeah, I had to watch it twice. I watched it once, and didn't, it didn't completely have my attention because there was other stuff going on. And I realized it as I was watching it. So I'm like, "Wait a minute, I need to watch that again." So the next day, I put it on again, and, and it was it, it just it just kind of envelops you and and washes over you in the best one way. Thing, one thing that bo almost bothered me about it at first, but I got over it pretty quick because I, I, I saw I, I I was able to explain to myself why it worked. 
uh, it seems, especially when you have um, people like um, Ben Affleck and Rachel McAdams and the French actress and Javier Bardem interacting with real people in Oklahoma, you realize how you realize how out of place they are. How they are not almost they are not even like the same species of people. Yeah. It's like they are so different. They look like so out of place. But that's how that's how you feel when you're in love too. But you feel like you're in a bubble, isolated from from the real world. Yeah. There's the real world, and then there's this there's this beautiful bubble that you're inside of, where everything is perfect, and right. you're and everything is beautiful. Yeah, and the, and he. We're really- all movie stars when we're in love. Yeah, exactly. We're all movie stars. We're all beautiful French girls twirling in dresses <laughs> against a sunset. <laughs> Performances aren't necessarily the first thing I tend to think of when I think of of, of a Terrence Malick film beyond um, his first one. Um, uh, Badlands? Badlands, yeah. Um, but this movie, the performances really struck me, and I kind of, based on what Affleck has said in interviews, I kind of got the sense that he had no idea what was necessarily wanted of him or what he was doing or why he was doing it. But I think he deserves a lot of credit for just sort of throwing himself into it and just doing it. And it works really, really well. His performance in this movie, to me, is so far beyond what he did in Argo. It's not even funny. And I think um, McAdams and Olga Karlienko were both terrific as well in really difficult parts because they're they're – they don't get the big speeches that they get to read to to outline their characters. It's all expressions and gestures. That's you know what? Though, I, time after time, it seems like in, uh, from from the time I first started hearing people talk about it with uh, the thin red line, when people were saying how all of their best stuff Malik left on the cutting room floor. Yeah. I think he deserves a little bit of credit for able, for knowing that actors need dialogue in order to to get into a character, but he's not going to use all that stuff because that's not what he has in mind. He 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 allows um, Sean Penn or Ben Affleck to have the script to go by, but they shouldn't be surprised if nothing if they if what they think is their best work doesn't end up appearing in the movie, and they shouldn't be so vain as to think that if I could only have been in this movie more, the movie would have been better. Right. No, dude. You know that's the wrong attitude. The director knows what he what he wants from you, and whatever he was, however he was able to to get you in the right frame of mind. If he had had to give you a ten page speech that gets left out in order to get um, an expression on your face, then that's his method. Yeah, I felt that it really was the woman, the one French woman's movie. I thought she just stole it, but and Affleck is great because so much of him is just his big shoulders from behind. And it serves his part really well. A lot of scenes don't even show his face at all, even when he's facing the camera. They're mm-hmm. just cut off his face, and it's just his arms and his body. And, and his hands. A lot of times you just see his hands. Yeah, he's such, a, he's such a strange kind of, you know, you, you can't quite get your hand a handle on him. I still think Brad Pitt was the best um, performer in Tree of Life. Like, to me, he just popped and Sean Penn didn't, and I felt like Ben Affleck was kind of the Sean Penn of this one. It wasn't that he was bad or that he didn't. It just he didn't pop like the other woman did. And I thought Rachel McAdams kind of felt seemed like she was sort of out of her element, like she just didn't quite know what she was supposed to do or be. I can't pretend to know how Malick thinks or what his method is, but it seems to me the more that I think about and the more that I hear people talk about the way that they are disappointed in the outcome of movies, when they don't see on the screen what they know that they did in front of the camera, it seems to me that he doesn't always want 
his actors to know what the movie is going to be about. He knows, but he's, he's, he, he likes, he, he knows that in, in, in real life, we like to think that we're the star of our own movie, but, yeah. but that's not the movie he's making. We can't, he, he can't have a movie where everyone is the star. And so Ben Affleck might've thought that it was going to be a completely different type of film. And, but then when he sees it, he sees all, all you see is the back of my head and my hands, dude, right. you know? So he's got to be disappointed in that in a way, because he knows that there's a bunch of other stuff that he put a lot of effort into that didn't make it into the movie, but that's not, he, he shouldn't worry about that. But there are a it lot didn't of actors. It did serve the film or it would, or he, Malik would have included it. Yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of actors that just you can put a camera on them and their internal world is so interesting. They don't need any dialogue and that they're comfortable just being in front of a camera doing showing that internal world and I felt that she, whatever her name is, you said it once, Craig. Olga Karlyenko. Yeah, I felt like she was that was her gift. She was really good at just her internal world without having to speak. And that was also, um, you know, uh, Jessica Chastain and Brad Pitt and Tree of Life both kind of nailed that. But for some actors like that are more extroverted, like Sean Penn, like Ben Affleck, maybe Rachel McAdams, they need to ex, you know, they need to, you know, express themselves outward. And they're not so good at just the internal stuff, you know. And some are, some aren't. And the ones that are good at the internal stuff, to me, make the better characters in the Malik. Although I felt like. I agree with you. I thought that um, Ben Affleck was, was, you know, his he served his purpose in the film really well. That's mm-hmm. the thing is I think his character did, didn't pop. It's not so much that Affleck isn't uh, did anything wrong. It's just that his character and same with Sean Penn's character, they're just not quite – they don't grab you the same way that um, Brad Pitt's character or Olga Karlyenko's character or even Javier Bardem's character. Those ones right. – were were much more fascinating whereas i think but that's what kind of why i give affleck some credit because it was it, it had to have been a difficult challenge mm. and i think he i think whether it was because of editing and directing or what it was i'm not sure but i think he pulled it off he did what he, he did what he needed to do to work for the movie mm. this reminds me can i go back to talk about the conversation and uh, something that i found out reading the, the, uh, the interviews with walter murch because uh, when Coppola wrote that he he specifically didn't write any backstory for the people who he was had under surveillance he did we did we don't know who they are we don't know what their relationship is to each other even we don't know what their relationship is to the corporation we don't know what they're in trouble for we can we barely know what they're talking about when they say he could kill us if he got the chance we don't we don't understand what that's all about he intentionally underwrote them because he didn't want us to think about that um he got the inspiration for that um from um, what um, Billy Wilder did with the apartment. When Billy Wilder saw Brief Encounter, there's one minor character in, in Brief Encounter who loans his apartment to the lovers, and that's all you see of that character. Billy Wilder wanted to make a movie about that fringe character. He wanted mm-hmm. to make a movie about the fringe character who loans his apartment. He didn't want to make the lovers the stars of the movie. Oh, he wanted yeah. to do something about the, 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 the tiny little supporting role and, and explore that guy's life. And he says in a normal suspense thriller, the guy who does, who, who, who does the surveillance tapes would come and drop off the tapes, and that's all you would see of him. But he wanted to make that guy the star of this movie. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. Yeah. See, today, both Wilder and Coppola would come to the studio and say, we want to do these movies in this way. And the studios would say, hey, wait a minute. No, we want to see the romance or we want to see 
you know, the mystery. We want the yeah, mystery. Exactly. We want the corporate villains. You know, and you barely know anything about the corporate villains at all. You just know it. You, the, the story that Coppola wants to tell is the, the is the is what would be the who would be the minor character in a, in a normal structure. And that's what Oscars buy you. Oscars and Hollywood buy you a few more, you know, at bats where you can do what you want. And that is what their benefit is. It's not just an ego boost for someone like Affleck or Clooney mm-hmm. or Fincher. It's a it's a chance to say, okay, I won this. This is my collateral. Now I get to do what I want to do. So that the question is, is, what's Affleck going to do with it now? He'll probably turn in moderate to good work, like the town. You know, he's he's who knows where he's going to go with it. Um, mm-hmm. Should we sag into room two thirty seven? Um, I we think have- we can sag into it because we're talking about conspiracies and of uh, conspiracy and paranoia and 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 reading into structure and stuff of the movies of the seventies, and that's what room. Um, well, we're, we're at, and we're um, also talking about artists who are unwilling to tell people what their movies are about, and I think that sort of fosters a certain over-exuberance on people to fill in the blanks, which to me mm-hmm. is what the movie was about. And we're talking about movies that get inside of your head in ways that we can't always explain, and the people who want to take want to and to people who who love those movies and watch them. 15 or 20 or 25 times, you start to see things that you don't see on first viewing, and you start to maybe jump to strange conclusions about things that maybe maybe the, the artist intended and maybe they didn't. But what, whatever it is, people get off on it, and people enjoy that, exploring that, that, thing, that about the movie. Um, we have it's, – it's at one hour and 53 minutes, so um, I'll mm. have to cut it down pretty significantly. So I don't even know if we want to – go into this. Okay. I would be happy not because I didn't like it anyway, but if you want to, I will. I didn't like it either. All I'm going to do is shit all over it, so I don't know. <laughs> I liked it better than you guys, I, but I don't... I, I agree with what I've heard, the comments that I've heard you both make, is that you think that it's a lot of crackpot theories. I do think that, that this sort of analysis is, is not uh, something that amateurs should try to attempt, I, but, but, some, but I do think there's a lot of value in looking for things like we were talking about all of the eye symbolism in Chinatown. There, that, that is there that people might not notice, but is there to be mined. If you want to mine the visual and structural elements of a film, the artist does put it there. But, those, but sometimes, those if you theories, don't, but sometimes people who don't really can can jump to strange conclusions. But those by, theories support the narrative. In The Shining, they don't. They're more like this is what Stanley Kubrick really wanted to say, you know. And they don't support either Stephen King's book. Or what, you know, the movie that I've seen all these years, that, that this is the story that he's telling. I don't deny that he, he peppers his films with weird kind of symbolisms here and there. You know, he does like to do stuff just to fuck with his audience. But they make it out that there is specific intent to mm. put across Some of it, yeah, I do agree that almost every day they stories, score... Uh, five or six different theories. They talk to five or six different people about and about what they what they have read into the movie and what they think it it, it means. And I think there's a kernel of truth and 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 what all of them say. But then they just will go way overboard. All of them go way overboard. But they to do that is to deny everything that every genius thing that Stanley Kubrick did do because they're looking at things. For instance, the whole. Um, baking powder thing in the um in the free in the uh, pantry they're they're saying oh that's indian symbolism well how about all the other stuff in the pantry the libby's you know and all the (laughs) other products that are just sitting there what do they say nothing oh because it's not convenient to my theory yeah well so i agree that theory is that that uh, that's probably um um 
that the guy's on the wrong track. The guy who said that is on the wrong track. But there was the the woman who said that she noticed the way that the that the that the floor plan of the hotel is laid out to be disorienting, and it doesn't really make sense that the that the manager's office who 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 that's in the middle of the building would have a window. Right, but, those but, things those things are intentionally. Um, I think they are intentionally done to to disorient us and make us feel unsettled and uneasy. And Kubrick is a master at sure, that. In the same way that Hitchcock that, was. Partly that, but they're also he wanted to get his shot, and he was doing anything to get his shot. And he was, you know, if you watch that documentary, that's really what it's like. Well, let's build it out this way. You know, I don't know. You know, let's build it out this way. Let's pull this mm-hmm. crane in. You know, he is such a visual director. He was, to me, all about getting the shot. And, of course, the, ho- the hotel doesn't end up making sense because it's all designed around his desire to get his shot of certain scenes. And maybe, maybe it was easier to build the set that way because it was easier to get the camera from one place to another by designing it that way. We, w- we don't know and we won't ever know. And to, to overly put well, too much significance I, on that stuff I think is to waste an awful lot of time and to miss a lot of what the movie is really about. I mean a, a disappearing chair or a, a typewriter that changes color is yeah, not those meaning those just, are those are continuity errors. On, on those were continuity errors. I agree and, with you. And but even if Kubrick that, did intend something to those things then that actually makes him a less interesting filmmaker than what any of us ever expected, I think. So I, I don't think he did, but I think if, if that's the case, if that's what he's spending all of his creative energies on, then then uh, I've been worshipping the wrong guy for the last 30 years. I don't think he spends all of his energy on it, but I don't think that someone who's as meticulous as Kubrick is and who's, who spends um, um, two years making a movie like Eyes Wide Shut and, and keeps uh, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman basically hostage until he gets the exact shots that he wants, I don't think that anyone who, who is that much a perfectionist lets anything uh, very much slide by by chance. I do think that there are things that in the movie and in this documentary that people go way overboard about. But I do think that part of the reason that his movies are so unsettling is because he does things visually that are meant to unsettle us. But and because I like he's, the he's a master. Some, I'm sorry. I like, that he, I like that some people notice that even if they go too far with it. But he's a master of composition. He's a painter. You know, when his shots are all set up that way, you know, from all of his films, you know, the, the movies that have the buried meaning, you know, Lolita is the buried meaning is, is there specifically to get past the, the ratings board. You know, mm-hmm. he didn't have that same problem with The Shining, but The Shining is, you know, it's all about that hotel and it's all about his shots and, mm-hmm. and you know. But, but Hitchcock was the same way. And for instance, you can look at Vertigo and you can look at, um, at, um, um, Jimmy Stewart's apartment, and the, even though you know the interiors of the apartment are a studio set and the exteriors were actually filmed in San Francisco, they match. The interiors and exteriors match perfectly. The, the doorway and the window of the exterior of that apartment that you see that was filmed on location match the set that they build that they built right. on, on but set. That's, but that's a and visual Fincher confirmation the same thing. of the, narrative. Both of those are visual confirmations of narrative. In mm-hmm. Room 237, they take those and they say it's some other whole other thing. That has nothing to do with the movie. He's talking about World War II. He's talking about the Apollo no, moon I, landing. I, but I don't think that the woman who noticed that the, that the layout of the of the hotel is meant to disorient us like a maze. I don't think that she was saying that that's what the movie was about. I just think that she. I think I'm talking about this one specific example. She was saying that the that the layout of the movie is disorienting, and we don't know what's going to be around the next corner because it doesn't make sense 
logically, architecturally, it doesn't make sense. And that, that fits in so well with, with the maze, um, with the theme of the maze and everything, that he, was, he intentionally meant for us to feel disoriented. I wish that we had had film um, critics sitting around or people talking about the deeper meanings of The Shining in those terms, but mm-hmm. not by bringing in all these other gobbledygook that he would never have thought of or tried to say. Yeah, well, you know, I'm not. I, I'm not trying. I'm not trying to defend anything that it was about the Indian burial grounds or about the Holocaust or anything like that. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying that some people see things that he did visually, and then they try to go, they try to carry it too far. But I do think that the, that that there are elements there that are meant that, that can be mined. Well, there's so her, much. Her that ideas is were there. the least loopy of the lot, but they are also the least illuminating. None of them really said anything that. I don't think any of us hadn't already picked up intuitively anyway. I mean, I, I never really thought about the layout of the hotel, but I always thought of the hotel as being kind of a maze and it being parallel to the maze, the literal hedge maze, mm-hmm. and being sort of a psychological maze. So it wasn't really, it, it didn't really add anything to the movie for this person to point out that the actual construction of the of of, of it didn't didn't make physical sense. That didn't, that didn't add anything for me. And anybody who knows about The Shining already knew that going in anyway, knew that the the, mate, the hotel didn't make logical sense the way it was built. I mean, that's part of the lore of The Shining. Um, but but there are so, so many great things to talk about that are that really are part of the film, which is the color red and how that's used and how he borrowed from Francis Bacon, the mm-hmm. painter Francis Bacon, for that great shot in the bathroom. I mean, you know, if you start with the visual stuff with Kubrick, I think that's where you really find the deeper meaning and and, and the way he used perspective and the way he used the crane shot, you know, Mm -hmm. and the way he dwarfs, um, what's her name, while she's walking through the kitchen and everything looks so supersized, you know, against her. Mm -hmm. That kind of stuff, you know, that's the stuff about The Shining to me that's way more interesting than... The kids wearing an Apollo, you know, sweater. I think that there's a guy on Twitter who happened to, you know, who owns that sweater, who knew how it got on the set. Like it was just somebody's sweater that they handed the kid they put on, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he has. He owns the actual sweater, the actual artifact, right? It's yeah. not just a. It's not just uh, one of the same sweaters. It, it is the sweater that they used right. in The Shining. I remember that the guy tweeting you about it. It just seems like to me what Room Tomb Thirty Seven does more than anything, other than the fact that show what a what a great filmmaker visually that, that Kubrick was, to inspire all these people to talk about it like mm-hmm. that, is how is the you know I'll never ever stop being surprised by the human imagination, the way it can expand out mm-hmm. in so many different directions. And, and it's fun. interesting to me, too, that, that people do this about uh, filmmakers like Kubrick, and they don't do it about very many other people. They do it for Wells. They do it for Kubrick. They do it for um, Hitchcock. They, they really get – they really – overanalyze their, these people, these guys' movies because these guys know how to get inside of our heads. And what? how do they do that? How do they get inside of our heads to make these movies stick with us well, that other directors are unable to do? They do that, but at the same time, Kubrick especially, they're very opaque. Mm-hmm. They don't offer up a lot. You know, They, they don't try to over-explain things. As Kubrick will have the most, you know, bizarre scene just of two people talking, like when in the um, the scene where uh, Shelley Duvall is explaining the accident to the doctor and she's talking mm-hmm. about how he broke his, uh, his son's arm and, um, and she says something to her like, you know, but it was just the kind of thing, you know, it was no big deal. 
and it looks at the woman and the woman's just staring at her for this really right. extended period of time. And that kind of stuff creeps you out. Mm-hmm. He doesn't explain why she's looking that way, but she looks weird. And, and, and in Eyes Wide Shut, when Tom, when um, Nicole Kidman's dancing with that guy and they're just having a normal conversation, well, it doesn't seem like a normal conversation. There's a lot of subtext. And he doesn't tell you what the subtext is. You have to figure it out. Well, mm-hmm. if you have to figure out what the subtext is with Jack Nicholson sitting at the bar saying all those very cryptic things, then you're bound to start coming up with all kinds of weird ideas. Some of the ideas, I will say that most of the ideas in room 237 are very, very weird. But there, there's enough of it that I can understand why, why the people who have these theories are excited about it and why they want to share them and why they can expand them beyond really what um, – where they should go sometimes they can go off the cliff with them for myself i can remember when i first was trying to teach myself how to paint uh it's a common thing for art students to do to go and and copy uh, a painting in a museum and to sit and make it make and uh, duplicate it i i go overboard with that when i when i was teaching myself how to paint i would want to make the, uh, a copy so exact that it could almost be a forgery <laughs> so i would i would want to get the colors exactly the same you know instead of trying to reinterpret it in my own style i would want to try to get the colors exact and i would want to try to get the exact layout so that it would be so you could overlay my copy on top of the original and you and they would they would be the same proportions and everything in order to do that i would lay i would lay out a grid on the canvas and one painting that i did was um uh, it was Gauguin, um, Gauguin's uh, two Tahitian women, mm-hmm. these two Tahitian women standing in a forest, and one of them is cradling a, tr- uh, a wooden tray of, of mangoes. And when I laid out the grid for that, the very first thing that I noticed that, you, that is not immediately apparent when you first look at this painting is that in the exact center of the canvas is one of these, girl, one of these girls' nipples. And you, you, you divide the canvas halfway horizontally, and you divide it halfway vertically, and her her nipple is right there at the cross section. And this, this the painting itself is not symmetrical, but he put that nipple at the very center of the canvas. And the only color the the color of her nipple, in order to duplicate that, um, if you're going to copy it, the only other color in the painting that matches that is is the color of the mangoes that she's holding in her arm. And when when you discover something like that, you kind of get a thrill because it's like you're getting inside the artist's head. That's not an accident, I don't think, that no. the nipple is in the exact center of the cam- canvas and that her nipple exactly matches the color of the mangoes. Well, that's not something that happens at, by chance. If you're looking at old, you know, Renaissance art or modern art, you know, that's full of mm-hmm. symbolism and mm-hmm. means so much, especially religious art that's telling stories with weird right. little symbols. Like Michelangelo his, and da Vinci are famous for that too, yeah, right? totally. Yeah. He's holding his hand up in this specific manner and that means mm-hmm. such and such and such and such. So mm-hmm. it's not that it's not warranted, I don't think, um, deeper, closer analysis of things like that. I think that is definitely artist intent, just like I think that the colors in The Shining are artist intent. He did think about stuff right. like that mm-hmm. visually. But to just all I'm saying is that the rest of it is so hokum. Um, that yeah, and I think that the, the movie is pretty frank about that, too. The, the movie is kind of almost mocks the, the people that, the, that they're the, the interviews. It's not putting these theories out there as right. something that should be studied in film, in film school. It's, 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 in a way, it's teasing about these people, right? That's how I came well, away from the movie. Well, some people do, though. Like my sister, who's inclined toward conspiracies, and she is magical thinking, you know, kind of person. She mm-hmm. totally bought the whole American Indian th- thing. Completely mm-hmm. bought it, 100%. Um, me being a kind of skeptical atheist type, you know, godless, as Craig would say. 
You know, <laughs> I didn't at all. Right. Like it just come on. Give me a break. You know, I lean more toward your sister's point of view, but I tried to prevent myself from going overboard with it. I, I don't know if you know the thing that I wrote about the, the opening credits of, of Life of Pi. I went pretty on, on some pretty long, uh, fragile limbs when I wrote that piece. I wrote it in the middle of the night and I was I was just seeing all kinds of things. I was almost hallucinating because I, I'd seen the movie so many times by then and I was looking for things that may or may not have been there. So I had to try to pull back from things where I think I'm going too far. You know, I've. I've talked to you two privately about a couple of things I've noticed about Life of Pi that I would almost be, uh, I would be hesitant to write about because I don't want people to think I'm I'm nuts. But see, I don't think that's right. I don't think anything you said ever got close to those silly theories in that movie because you know, again, when you're talking about visual imagery and you're talking about um, what the artist put in that imagery and what it could mean. You're finding deeper meaning to Life of Pi. You're not taking it all off on, you know what he really meant to say was that was, you know, that was the assault on Afghanistan. I, I see what you mean. Yeah, I do absolutely agree with you there. And the things that I'm talking about that, that I appreciated about Room 237, is that the number? I'm not even beginning the number wrong because I know no. so no, little about right. it. Uh, it, are the things that, that impressed me the most are the visual things that people noticed. And I sent you to uh, a, a YouTube video that I found about somebody had done a 10-minute analysis of the twins and how the color of their dresses were the exact same color, the, the same shade of blue as, as the walls of the hotel. Things right. like that. I don't think, you know, I think the production designer thinks about those things. I do too, visually. but, the, but yeah. you wouldn't then say, and that that's because he's talking about, you know, how Jesus died and was resurrected on Easter. <laughs> Right. I agree with you. <laughs> so, I do agree that it, it, it became really funny to watch these people go to the to take a little idea and to carry it to such an extreme that they became they almost sounded like they lost their minds. But it's it's just amazing because he's such an opaque filmmaker that that it mm. is open to interpretation. Yeah. You know, he might get a kick out of those some of those theories that people like mm -hmm. some of the, the one guy. He didn't even take him time or multiple viewings. That was his first mm -hmm. impression. Oh, yeah, I know. And back to Walter Murch and the conversation, there's an actual illustration in this book of interviews with Walter, Walter Murch. The interviewer asks him about one shot in a scene between Michael and Kay where Michael is telling Kay that he, wants to, he doesn't want her to come with him. He wants to go by himself. And the interviewer asks him, why does this shot not match? Why, is, why do you cut back to Michael? And he's not in the same place in the frame. And, and Walter Murch said, we did that intentionally to let the audience know almost subliminally that something is not right about what Michael is saying. Don't, do not trust, do not take what he's saying at face value mm. because we're putting him to the side of the, of the frame so that, so that it's meant to make, make you feel uneasy about what he's saying. He's, he's disturbed the the visual relationship between the visual relationship between Kay and Michael has been disturbed, and we we did that intentionally to work on the psyche of the audience. Yeah, I mean, they, well, they didn't really. They, some of them touched on the whole. You know, Stephen King was mad that The Shining was so badly misinterpreted, mm. um, but they didn't go into it really enough. A lot of the the dynamic between the two of them was. Kubrick just kind of being, you know, I want to make the movie I want to make. I don't want to make your movie. Mm -hmm. You know, and that was a lot of the reason why he made some of the choices that he made visually. You know, a lot of that stuff is just made up. It's not in the book. Like the maze isn't in the book. Red rum isn't in the book. Right. Um, Scatman Crothers doesn't die in the book. The book is way more scary than the movie. And the book leaves no doubt as to what it's about. It is not opaque at all. It's completely filled in. You know, and if you take the mm -hmm. two together, if you've read the book and you see the movie, you know, you're never going to start looking for 
deeper meaning or what Kubrick was trying to say, because why would Kubrick do that? Why would he start talking about the American Indians or the Holocaust and the shining? Why wouldn't he just make a movie about the Holocaust or about the American Indians? You know, I agree 100% with that. I agree. I think it's human nature to look for patterns that aren't there. Uh, building patterns is how we communicate. It's how we learn. It's how we perceive the world around us, which is great. It, it's helped us through evolution, but it also can get really carried away to where we're seeing patterns that don't exist, like looking at the stars and seeing pictures of constellations that have meaning, except they really don't. They're just random random collections. And I think that's a lot of the thinking that's going into people's ideas about The Shining. It's a movie that people didn't quite understand when it came out. People didn't quite appreciate when it came out, but everybody knows that Kubrick is this mad genius obsessed, you know, attention to detail and at the same time unwilling to tell people exactly what it is he's thinking or doing. And that just that's just a whole can of worms for crazy people. Well see I almost think that that's part of was to me, part of what the movie is about, what you're saying, though, it's about examining the way that people like to try to to overlay meaning onto things that don't that are meaningless, and that's part of what the movie is about. To me, is the, is the phenomenon of people doing that. Yeah, absolutely. And for that, it's invaluable. There is no mm. other movie like that, mm. right? That, that yeah, that's why I enjoyed it. That's why I li- I didn't I didn't I didn't like I said I don't think that these theories are something that should be thought taught in film school because they're ridiculous. A lot of them are just ridiculous, but it was fascinating just to watch the way that the human mind works. I guess it's For something some- that I already was waiting to me to hear people's theories about certain things. A lot of the stuff is just nonsense and I don't like to to, to focus on it, but some of it, for some reason, is oddly compelling. Yeah. And yet, this movie didn't didn't approach that level of interest to me for some reason. I, the the people themselves were were not explored enough to to really become interesting. And and I don't know, it just it didn't, right. it never clicked for me. That's that's what it was missing. It was missing getting to know who these people were. I thought, like, I kept expecting the camera to switch around to them and show what their daily lives were like. You know, right? And it never did I, do that. I wish to that that it's and because it really mostly just hear the people talking. They're they're doing voiceover and they're showing scenes from the movie that supposedly illustrate what they're saying. But you rarely get a even a, a glimpse of the people who are talking. I think that there would was be- there was the one guy who at the very end admitted that he had a kid and he was unemployed. That's when it, the movie started to get interesting. But that was like three seconds before the credits started rolling. Mm-hmm. I would mm-hmm. much rather have known about who these people are than than and why that they related to The Shining that way, you know, than than what their theories were, which weren't that interesting ultimately. Right. Uh, other than the fact that they made them at all, you know, it's the whole play the Beatles backwards kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, it, it, it was so silly to think that you would play the the shining backwards on top of itself <laughs> that was kind of cool from though. two projectors like you could do that with any movie it and come neat. up with interesting things that would happen at the same time on screen but what a bizarre thing to think that anyone would consciously construct their movie like that like kubrick had that kind of time on his hands you know? all right it's absurd and if he, and if he and what i said before is if he did 
imagine that and and think that that was a good idea, that just makes him a terrible filmmaker. <laughs> he couldn't have been because after he you couldn't film have, it, though. you, I mean, you edit it. Been, uh, and, you know, you have to sit there. Why, in the why would room? he have? Because there's right. no way the technology as it was at that time. There's really no way for anybody to to ever see it that way. No, and they'd have to have dual projection rooms going, and one was playing it backwards, and one was playing it forwards, and he's editing it that way. Can you imagine? And you'd have to have be have to have a tab of acid and or a lot of pot in order yeah. to sit through it. For sure. It, it would be like if the people who built the pyramids had inscribed secret messages underneath the stones as they laid them down <laughs> that nobody would ever see. Yeah. Right. It's like, exactly. great, those are there, but who gives a shit? <laughs> I know. All right, you guys, great talking with you as usual. It was lots of fun. Good night. Good night. Talk to Bye-bye. you later. Bye. You've been listening to part two of episode 26 of Oscar podcast with Craig Kennedy from livingincinema.com, Ryan Adams and Sasha Stone from awardsdaily.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Oscar podcast and the bumper music was don't look back by Van Morrison and oh my God, whatever, etc. by Ryan Adams, not that Ryan Adams, but thanks for listening.